myself. Uh, I may have mentioned before that I used to live on Royal Parkway and Del Mar, and I do miss Old Town, and I hear your restaurants are still open. Happy, yeah, a lot of people have been visiting. We did this story on the news, people visiting from out of Pasadena because Pasadena were the only restaurants that were open. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving weekend, everyone. Hope you had a very great and safe Thanksgiving and can now mentally and spiritually start preparing and moving toward Christmas. I, for one, can't even start thinking about Christmas until I've crossed that Thanksgiving threshold, which means no Christmas music, no Christmas decorations, and definitely, yes, I'm hearing cheers and support, thank you, and definitely no Christmas movies until the Friday after Thanksgiving. That's my rule. So Friday, I started watching for the first time The Holiday. People seen The Holiday as a Christmas movie. Okay, a couple of people. Uh, let's, let's take a quick poll right now. Favorite Christmas movie? How many are the classic It's a Wonderful Life? All right, not that many. How many are more contemporary? Uh, Elf, favorite Christmas movie? A couple more hands. How many are more out of the box? Die Hard? Yes, Die Hard, okay, a few of you. Well, my favorite Christmas movie of all time is the 1994 remake of Miracle on 34th Street. People have seen that movie? All right, a few of you. Uh, Dylan McDermott, Elizabeth Perkins, Sir Richard Attenborough is a great Santa Claus, and Maura Wilson is the little girl. And I'm not giving much away when I tell you this basic plot point, which is one of my favorite parts of the movie, is when the little girl tell Santa what she wants for Christmas. And it's not a toy or a doll or a game. She tells Santa that she wants a dad and a baby brother. That makes me misty every time I see that scene. She wants a dad and a baby brother because she feels that's what she needs in her life. She feels like that would change her life. It's that kind of life-changing gift that, that all of us would love for Christmas, right? I mean, we love getting stuff from Amazon, but we really like those gifts that have a meaningful impact in our lives. We do this all the time in the news. We cover stories like this. Uh, a year ago, I covered the story of a life-changing surgery at UCLA for a blind man who suddenly could see light shapes, circular lights of where objects are in front of them. It was just this revolutionary surgery that was amazing to him. And I can't get enough of the stories where we show service members coming home to their families as a surprise for Christmas. And of course, this Christmas, we are all praying for an end to this pandemic. We are all praying for the gift of healing and restoration to those who have fallen ill or who have been impacted by COVID-19. But as we move toward Christmas, as we begin Advent, we are reminded that actually the greatest and most life-changing gift of all has already arrived. And that is God incarnate. God as a human being, the birth of Jesus. It's a gift that has already impacted and changed the lives of billions of people around the world throughout history and continues to impact lives. But the Bible challenges challenges us on this in that it could impact many more lives, including lives of those of us in the church. If we truly 
and completely received and accepted this gift. I love how Tim Keller puts this. He asked the question, if we truly have accepted the gift, that in Jesus, a savior has been born, that in him we have everything we need and that our future is secure. Why are so many of us, and I include myself in this, at so many times feeling just as insecure, just as fearful, just as anxious, just as angry, just as entitled, just as sensitive to criticism as everyone else? Could it possibly be that somewhere deep inside, we still haven't accepted this gift? That somewhere deep inside, we are reluctant to embrace it? That's what we're going to explore today in our passage. If you could turn your Bibles and your apps to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, this is a very famous uh, passage. Um, And we're going to be looking at verses uh, 2 and 6 and 7, and we're going to have it read. Isaiah 9, 2. Six and seven. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Wow, I want to be where they are. Is that Arrowhead? Shaver Lake. Wow, gorgeous. Uh, Let's pray, everyone. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you the truth of who you are as revealed in your word. We pray this morning that this truth and that these words penetrate and that they open our mind and enlighten our heart and, it, and they change us and that we receive the gift that is Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. So we're in the Old Testament, and the prophet Isaiah is doing what scholars call the prophetic perfect. And that is, he is looking ahead in time to the birth of Jesus as if it has already happened. Because the birth of Jesus moves both forward and backward in time. It is relevant to all of us now, as it is relevant to those who were born before Jesus was born. It is a gift for all times, all places, and all people but it is only a life-changing gift if we choose to accept it, and we can't accept it unless we understand it. So we're gonna look at three things today. Why the gift, what is the gift, and how do we receive it? Why the gift, what is the gift, and how do we receive it? First, why the gift? Let's go to the first verse and read that again. Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, when we look at a particular passage in the Bible, we have to remember the context. We have to remember the situation. So what is the situation? Why are the people of God in darkness? 
Well, to do that, we have to look at the previous chapter. We have to look at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter eight. And, that, and there, the Israelites, the people of God, are being besieged, they're being attacked by the Assyrians and there's great destruction. So they're in great distress and they're angry and they're hungry and they're blaming God for it and they're cursing God and they're looking to anything but God for the answer. They're looking to mediums and spiritualists, I hope I said that right, which is kind of the equivalent of fortune tellers and horoscopes today. They're looking everywhere but up. They're looking horizontally when they should be looking vertically. And that has brought them into darkness. In fact, it has brought them into deep darkness and there's only one end to that and that is death. In the Hebrew in this passage, darkness and death go together. And death, of course, is something that has haunted all of us as human beings ever since the fall. The fall, the first human beings are disobedient. We rebel against God, we rebel against each other and we become subject to death and we have lived in the shadow of death and in denial of death ever since. There's an anthropologist named Ernest Becker who wrote a book called The Denial of Death, and in it he calls Western civilization, us, the most death-denying culture in the history of humankind. And he says that we deny death in three ways. Number one, through alcohol and drugs. Number two, through relentless pursuit of things like money, whoops, <laughs> saved it, sex and drugs. And number three, we do it through what he calls immortality projects. Immortality projects are belief systems that we create that we think will last forever, that will outlast us. There are causes, if you will, that make us feel superior to other people and inevitably, our so-called superior belief systems will clash with other people's so-called superior belief systems, and that results in conflict, it results in hatred, it results in bigotry, it results in racism, it results in war, and it results in genocide. In other words, complete and utter darkness. But the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. That is our hope. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The darkness is why we needed the light. The darkness is why we needed the gift. The darkness is why we needed Jesus because Jesus is light and Jesus is life and Jesus is new life. And who wouldn't want a gift like that? Well, as it turns out, us. Jesus says himself in John chapter three, he says that people prefer the darkness to the light because in the dark, we can do whatever we want. We can get away with whatever we want. But in the light, it all gets exposed. In the light, we all get exposed as sinners. Romans three says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that is a specific rejection and repudiation by God of any kind of superiority system that we create. And we see this in Isaiah chapter nine in the first verse. In the first verse, God says he will honor the Galilee of the nations, the Galilee of the nations. Galilee is where Nazareth is. Nazareth is where Jesus is from. And you remember in John chapter one, Nathaniel, when he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, what does he say? 
Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? See, back then, Nazareth was considered podunk. It was considered ghetto. It was considered a blank hole. And yet God chose to honor it. Wait a minute, we say. Aren't there good places and bad places? I mean, really, aren't there good people and bad people? And, and, and don't the good people deserve to be above or at least deserve more than, than the bad people when you compare the things they've done, the good things they've done versus the bad things people have done? Don't the good people deserve more because of what they've done or because of what they believe or how they voted? But God says that merit system is pure darkness which is why he offered a way out, which is why he offered a light, which is why he offered a gift. Now, what is that gift? Let's go back to our passage and look at verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now we are in Washington, D.C., undergoing a transition of power right now, and regardless of how anybody voted, it is a reminder to us that all human governments end. Some governments last more than others, but all governments come to an end. We see it also in the Bible. The Bible talks about the rise and fall of principalities and empires, and it tells us that even though we need governments, we need the structure, we need the order, we should not put all of our hope on governments, or government leaders. But that is what we tend to do. It is what the people of God did. It is what Israel did. You see that in the book of Judges. At the end of Judges, in Judges 21, it's chaos and the people of God, it says they were doing what everyone saw fit, whatever they wanted. And they pleaded for the prophet Samuel to ask God for a king. And God said to Samuel, you know what they're really doing is rejecting me as king. And a king is just going to exploit them. And Samuel told them this, but the people still said, no, we want a God. I mean, we want a king. And sure enough, they got a king, one after another. They got a series of kings, most of whom were spectacularly bad. And even the good ones, King David, King Solomon, Josiah, even they ultimately fell short. Because God knew that a human king just wasn't going to cut it. That the king needed to be both human and God. So unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. To us and for us. Both God and man. That's what makes Christianity unique among the world's faiths. Christianity is the only faith that, that says that God was born as a human being to a human mother. And of course, it had to be that way. He had to talk the talk and walk the walk. He had to experience all the emotions that we experience. He had to experience the suffering that we experience, and even more so. 
But at the same time, he had to be God. He had to be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Let's break that down. Wonderful counselor, the true and ultimate source of wisdom, the one who truly empathizes with us. Mighty God, the word might in Hebrew is gabor, which means hero and champion and knight in shining armor. He is the God who rescues us. Everlasting Father. He is the Father who never disappoints, never mistreats, and never leaves us. And finally, he is the Prince of Peace. The word peace, of course, in Hebrew is shalom, and shalom doesn't just mean inner peace, it means complete physical and economic and spiritual flourishing. It is wholeness of mind, body, and spirit. It's no more death, no more tears, no more pain. It is the new heaven and new earth as illustrated in Revelation 21. It is God's kingdom. Jesus brought it, he brought it on his shoulders, he's doing it as we speak, and he's gonna complete it when he comes back. And he has asked us to participate with him, which is why we feed the hungry, we clothe the naked, we care for the sick, which is why Vintage Pasadena partners with Door of Hope and why Vintage in Santa Monica, we partner with Salvation Army and Harvest Home and the people concerned. God's gift is a true king a true source of hope that leads us out of our destructive self-obsession, leads us out of a merit system that only brings darkness and death and leads us into everlasting life. What a gift. What a gift. But it only works if we choose to accept it. So how do we accept it, because we have free choice. We can accept it or reject it, but sometimes the hardest part is to receive this kind of gift. How do we do it? Let's go back to our passage, Isaiah 9, verse seven. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on, and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Right after the service, I'm going to be hitting the books again. As Ben mentioned, uh, I am in my final year at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary because my sole goal in life is to be like Ben Chase. And right now we're taking a course called Contemporary Missiology, and we've been studying how America and the Western world is in this post-Christendom, post-Christian society, where Christian, Christianity is no longer at the center of society, where it was for centuries, but now is now on the margins of society, and is in the outside looking in. And some scholars argue that actually is a good place to be. That's where the early church was because it enables the church to be truly counter-cultural. It enables the church and all of us to be a contrast to the world and the culture around us. And that's what the early church did by helping the poor and the marginalized, by fighting for justice and righteousness, by, by loving and respecting 
their brothers and sisters, by loving and respecting their enemies. Because this was such a stunning display of God's love and grace and forgiveness. People couldn't help but be drawn to it, and the church just blew up in numbers. And it grew by leaps and bounds. And that was because these followers of Christ knew that they no longer reigned over their own lives. It was God reigning over their lives and they had to worship him. They had been transformed. And that was risky though. That was risky because you were supposed to worship the emperor during those times. You were supposed to worship the Caesar. So worshiping a God who, a man who claimed he was God and who was crucified and who was supposedly resurrected, that was considered foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. People now say, why do you have to see Jesus as God? That is crazy. That is foolish. That's stupid. Why can't you just see him as as a good guy, as, as a good example, as a good teacher, someone we can emulate? Well, if we do that, then we're back to the merit system. And some people are going to think that they do it better than others and they're going to feel superior. And the people who think they do it less well than others, they're going to feel inferior. And we're back to where we started. And nothing changes. And nothing changes in here. We can't see Jesus as just a good person. It's actually impossible. In fact, the Bible tells us that, Jesus, uh, that people reacted to Jesus in one of only three ways. They either hated him and thought he was crazy for saying he was God. They were either afraid of him and ran away because he was doing these miracles. Or they believed him, fell down on the ground and worshipped him, and gave him their highest allegiance. One of three choices. And... Those of us who think we're neutral or indifferent about Jesus, I would argue that you're really just one of the first two. You either have rejected him or you're running away from him. I mean, that's what I did for most of my adult life and that's what my friend Earl did. I'm gonna tell you a little testimony about my friend Earl. He's given me permission to do that. Uh, Like me, Earl... Had a good life, he had a good job, he had a pretty wife, he saw, so need, he saw no need for God. He thought Christians were stupid and foolish, like his brother. And everything seemed to be going along smoothly, but in a series of days, uh, he lost everything. His wife left him, emptied their bank account, and he was on the verge of suicide. But at the moment where he was about to do it, he was sitting alone at night, bottles on the table. He got a phone call. And he answered the phone, it was his brother. And he said to his brother, what's up? Why'd you call? And his brother said, no, you called me. And Earl said, no, you called me. And they talked for a little while about God and That gave Earl some pause. And then he started to pray. He prayed, God, if you are real, reveal yourself to me. 
and he had had the TV on. And then a story came up on the news that there was a fire at a lodge and the only item that survived was a Bible. And Earl was like, huh. And then he prayed again. And he, he, he said to God, God, if you're real, show me again. <laughs> Prove to me once more that you're real. And he just found himself gazing at his bookshelf and then his eyes somehow fixated on a book that he'd never touched that was a gift from a friend many, many, many years ago and it was a Bible. And he started reading it. And that was the beginning of Earl's surrender to God, his complete surrender to Jesus Christ. And he's become one of the most faithful, most dedicated members at Vintage Santa Monica. He is the leader of our Bottles and Socks ministry in which we go out to the Venice Boardwalk and minister to those uh, experiencing homelessness and he's become one of my best friends. And his family members will tell you he has completely transformed from an angry and bitter and selfish man to this shining example of God's love and generosity. And it's all because at that critical moment, Earl chose to accept the gift. He chose to accept the gift. But it wasn't necessarily easy. He had to give up something big. He had to surrender his pride. See, we all have to surrender our pride to receive this gift. We have to be able to say we're in trouble, that we're in a bad place, that we're in a place that we can't earn our way out of, we can't work our way out of, we can't even do good deeds our way out of, that we need a savior that we need Jesus. We need someone who lived the perfect life that we want to lead, who paid the price for all the things we did wrong, who died the death that we deserve, and who came back to life so that we could have new life. It took me 40 years to see that. because I came to Christ in college. I was 23 years old. I accepted Christ as my savior, but I didn't accept his gift. I didn't surrender to him completely until 20 years after that. There is a difference. That's step one. Step two is realizing that our new life is not our own, that we belong to God, that we were bought with a price. That God is not some genie that we can rub to get what we want. Instead, he is the wonderful counselor and mighty God and everlasting father and prince of peace who uses us to accomplish his will to his glory and to our benefit. So what then is the difference between using God to get what you want and feeling, which we inevitably will, and being angry and bitter and disappointed and resentful and entitled and sensitive to criticism? What's the difference between that and being used by God and experiencing fullness and joy? Well, the theologian Jonathan Edwards says the difference is praise. The difference is praise. Praise is something we do naturally. 
when we love someone or we are in love with someone, we can't help talking about how great and amazing they are when we taste a food we like or when we see a movie or listen to music or read a book that we really, really like. We can't help but tell people, you need to see this, you need to read this, you need to listen to this. It's so, so, so great. That is praise. Praise completes the enjoyment of what we're praising. And since God is the author and creator of all of those things, of all things of beauty, of all creation, he deserves the highest praise. God deserves the highest praise. And when we praise him, it completes our enjoyment of him. Praise allows us to see everything he has done in our lives. Praise allows us to see all our blessings. Praise allows us to see that in Jesus, our Savior, we do have everything we need and our future is secure.